Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Pit bulls are often called the dog America loves to hate. They've been stigmatized by stories of aggressive behavior, locking jaws, and poor temperament around children, none of which are accurate. Some cities and counties in Georgia ban pit bulls from being off-leash in dog parks or have issued ordinances warning that pit bulls are dangerous. Well, in reality, pit bull is not a singular breed. Still, national statistics show that dogs labeled as pit bulls in shelters spend three times longer there than other dogs. Some research shows that pit bulls are also most likely to end up in a shelter and most likely to be euthanized. For the last decade, Jason Flatt has made it his mission to save as many as he can. He's founder of Friends to the Forlorn Pit Bull Rescue in Dallas, Georgia, which houses between 75 and 100 animals on any given day, most of them pit bulls, and he has rehomed more than 600 dogs since 2009. He's joining me in the studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jason, you grew up in Queens in a home with pets and thought you might become a veterinarian, but instead ended up with a successful career on Wall Street. How do you look back on that period of your life? Things need to happen for a reason. Certain events happen in life, and sometimes you just, some people go through life never finding what they're supposed to do, what their true calling is. What, um, what, what do you think brought you there for yourself? I know what brought me there. My brother committed suicide uh, right before I moved to Georgia. Mm. and um, everything that I was chasing on Wall Street, the money and the success and, you know, trying to be comfortable, what was what made me comfortable didn't matter anymore. It's a really devastating loss. I'm so sorry. Thank you. So what happened? I mean, how, how, did, how did you deal with that? How did that affect you? You know, at first, you know, when, when, when I got that, I was down here looking at houses when I got the phone call. It was uh, July 22nd. And my dad called me and told me, and I flew right home, and uh, I buried my brother, went back to work, and got caught up in that, and it, it almost like numb. And then when I moved down here, um, my wife and kids were up in, in New York, you know, finishing out the school year, and I was down here all alone, and I worked from home, and that's when the depression really set in, and uh, it, was, uh, it was crippling. You know, I never understood it. You know, I'm a man. I'm not supposed to break down. And uh, nobody knew it, but there were days that I couldn't function. And there were, there were days that I'd curl up in a ball and just couldn't even answer my phone for work. And, um, you know, it was a scary time for my family. And, uh, you know, they started to see it. And it's like the superhero, you know. And he's The man of the family. Yeah. The, you know, I had my mom to worry about. I had uh, my wife, my kids. And it was, you know, my stepchildren and... Um, you know, how can you break down? I wasn't allowed. But, you know, certain things are beyond your control. It creeps in and it crept, you know, it, it crept in. And um, it's something that you don't want to admit. And so on the outside, no one knew anything was wrong. And on the inside is where I was torn up. Mm -hmm. um, and I battled it for a few years. I mean, you never get over it. It's always there. Um, but you find the place for it and you find how to deal with it. Therapy wasn't my thing. Drugs, alcohol, just not interested in it, never was. Um, it was a little dog that kind of helped me fight my fight. I brought that little puppy home, and it was, he needed me, 
and I needed him more than he needed me. And uh, just every day, that was my reason to get up, was to work with him and just to take him everywhere. And I wanted him to, uh, you know, I saved him, but he saved me. And I promised him, I said, I'm going to pay it back to you. And uh, I did. And that's, that was the birth of Forlorn. So this was a little dog named Angelo yeah. that a friend of yours gave to you. Mm-hmm. So in searching for a friend for Angelo, that's when you started visiting different shelters in the area. What would you learn there? It, it was insane. Um, I walked into the Cab County Animal Control and uh, all the X's on the cages. At the time, the Cab County um, didn't adopt out pit bulls to the public. Pit bull or pit bull mixes. And like you said, dogs get lumped into the group of pit bull. If it has a large head, large chest, any characteristics, um, it becomes pit bull. Um, they killed an average of, I think, uh, 135 pit bull or pit bull mixes a month. Mm. And uh, it bothered me. And I walked out of there and I said, something needs to be done about this. This is, you know, this, this little dog, Angelo, that I have is the most amazing creature in the world. And, you know, these dogs don't deserve this and something needs to be done. So what is it about pit bulls and their history that makes people so afraid or distrustful of them? If, if as, you know, what I'm reading in statistics and from you, that's not accurate. You know, people are afraid of what they don't know. People see me and they cross the street. They don't know me. People are very scared of what they don't know and they don't know what pit bulls truly are. I just want to note for people who are listening and and don't see you, you do have facial tattoos. You do have tattoos all over your body, uh, your hands. uh, uh, So that is something that may lead people to make judgments about you. What do you think those judgments are? I mean, people assume I've been in prison. Uh, People, you know, assume you're in a gang. You know, my pit bulls, my, my tattoos, they don't, you know, describe who I am. You know, see what I do. You know, take, take a chance, take a look deep into what, what I really am. Well, what, what you have done is create this Friends to the Forlorn in 2009. How did you choose that name? I wanted, I wanted to pick something that described these dogs, and I also wanted it to make people think. You know, people tend to react without thinking, and I wanted people to think, figure out what it's about, and then maybe understand why we've taken the dogs that we do. You know, we take on the dogs that nobody wants. Not, nobody wants a pit bull, but nobody wants a messed up pit bull. Nobody wants a pit bull that's shot in the head um, or with disease. They don't want them. Those are the ones that need you the most. Where do you get the dogs? Where do they come from? Uh, majority of them we take from, um, from pounds. I don't have to look too far. Mm-hmm. Every pound emails me every day. I get between twelve and 1,500 emails a day wow. from all over the country. Obviously, you can't take all of them. No, I'll never be able to rescue my way out of it. My guest is Jason Flatt. He's founder of Friends to the Forlorn Pitbull Rescue. It's located in Dallas, Georgia. But as we just heard, he hears from people all over the country. Well, okay, so you make a a point of of saving the dogs that nobody else wants to save. They have medical issues, behavioral issues. So what kind of resources do you put into place to make sure that you're able to meet their needs and even rehabilitate them? We, uh, we give them whatever they need, uh, medically, um, behaviorally. Most of the time, it's just some love and some food. These dogs are resilient. They come back. I took a dog a couple of weeks ago. I got a call um, from some friends who run animal control down in Macon. Their animal shelter was shut down 
but uh, the neighboring county, Twiggs County, doesn't have an animal control. Mm-hmm. They called me at 8 o'clock at night. There was a dog that um, was found on a woman's porch in horrible shape. So the dog had nowhere to go, and they held the dog till I could drive down to Macon at midnight. When I got down there, the dog, he was thin. His bone was exposed in his tail. There was um, wounds all over him that were down to the bone, and he was shot in the face. Mm. And he was still wagging his tail. Three weeks later, the dog's brand new. He can't see out of his eye, but we're going to treat his heartworm disease. He's all full of muscle, and he's back playing. Um, Rehabilitate, it's pretty easy on the physical side to rehabilitate them. And they're so forgiving, and they're so trusting of humans it amazes me. All he wants to do is eat and love and play. Jason, what do you think it is? You know, people, I'm assuming, walked by that animal, drove by that animal. Finally, someone reported it. What, why do you, what is it in you? Why are you the one doing this work? You've changed your whole life in order to take care of them. It's almost selfish for me. What do you mean? Like, it's therapy for me. Like, it's tattooed on my knuckles. It says, save pits. And for me, sometimes I just cross my hands and it says, pits save. Hmm. The more the dog needs, they, the better it makes me feel inside when they come back. The comebacks are so much bigger than the setbacks, and it's almost selfish for me because it doesn't take much. You know, sometimes it takes a few thousand dollars, but to save a life, I'd pay a few thousand dollars. You know, if you could, we've had dogs that were paralyzed and we spent $7,000 on a surgery, but if you were paralyzed, I think you'd spend a lot more than $7,000 if you had a, a chance of walking again. You'd take that chance. So I want to give them every opportunity to get right. So this is expensive. In many ways, you've, you've made the point yourself that this is a losing business model. There are far more dogs that need to be rescued than you have the capacity to save. Oh, and, and what we put into the dogs and our adoption fees, um, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, it, there's no way to make money on it. So what has made Friends to the Forlorn successful? We're dedicated. We're committed. We don't exaggerate. We don't fabricate. You know, if, it, if there's a dog and it's, you know, dog shot in the face, I don't sit there and fundraise. We, get, we, we find out what the dog needs first. We don't make everything an emergency. Mm-hmm. And I think that people see the, the truth. I think people see what really happens with us. And I think that that's what made us successful is our marketing is just our integrity. It's like, here we are, here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And then we show them what we do. How do, how do you find the right home for these animals when placing them into adoption? That's the hard part. Rescuing them, getting them healthy, not the difficult part. In my mind, the placement's the most important part. You know, like you said, this is the breed that people love to hate. And people want these dogs, you know, abolished. Every time that there's an incident, every time that you put a dog into a bad situation and something happens, you're one step closer to those people getting what they wanted. My job is not just to rescue these dogs. My, my job is to protect these dogs. So I'm very careful. We have a, a pretty severe process. Our application's incredibly invasive. We invade your home. We do a home visit. Um, background checks, property record checks. People lie all the time. We deny probably 80, 85% maybe of our applications. Sometimes they attract the wrong people. Well, Pitbull Rescue is not the only thing that you do. In fact, uh, you also have a spay-neuter program for dogs and cats, vaccine services, 
and lectures from kindergarten classes up to universities. To prisons. Of, <laughs> so what, what, what's your conversation there? How do these services supplement your, your mission as a rescue? I'm a humanitarian. It's, I care about life. I care about all forms of life. Um, I know that in my heart that I'm never going to be able to rescue all of the dogs or all of the cats. So by spaying and neutering, it helps cut down the population. It helps cut down by – instead of trying to get them out of the pound, I'd rather prevent them from ever getting in. How have your friends and your family reacted to this shift from you know, Wall Street guy to what Atlanta magazine dubbed as Atlanta's patron saint of pit bulls? <laughs> I'm no saint. <laughs> but um, I've had some people really applaud my efforts. And I've lost some friendships and lost some relationships. You know, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not, you know, I went nine years without a day off, working seven days a week. And, uh, you know, we've grown enough now where I have employees and I can travel a little bit and, and do things like come here. So this was a rescue for you, it sounds like. Oh, it definitely was. If it wasn't for this rescue, like, you could offer me $20 million in cash and tell me to walk away. Couldn't do it. I'm in too deep. I'd never leave. I'm going to die doing this. What do you wish people understood about pit bulls? There's a lot of people that love them. I wish people understood them a lot better. People are animal lovers, but they don't understand animals. And pit bulls sometimes don't like other dogs. And I wish that they wouldn't fail them. People fail these animals at an alarming rate. They think that they're going to love all the problems out of them. No, you manage some of those issues. You don't rehab them. You manage them. Jason Flatt, best of luck to you. Thank you. Jason Flatt, founder of Friends to the Forlorn Pitbull Rescue in Dallas, Georgia. You can find more on their website, savingpitbulls.org. There's more on Second Thought coming up right after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last week, federal agents arrested seven suspected members of the white supremacist group The Base. Among the suspects, three men from North Georgia, Tequila, Dalton, and Silver Creek. They were allegedly planning to kill an Atlanta-area couple and preparing for a race war. The arrests expose a new front in violent extremism. Law enforcement investigating domestic terrorism consider small clusters of cells united by a larger group or ideology to be an expanding threat. Well, the emergence of these cells comes as analysts note an increase in hate crimes across the country and a fear of continued surge in 2020. John Bailey is executive editor at the Rome News Tribune and has been covering the story. He's joining us on the line now. John, welcome. Thank you. Joining us via Skype is Joanna Mendelson. She's senior investigative researcher and director of special projects at the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Joanna, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. John, I'm going to start with you. What were the charges against the three men arrested last week in North Georgia? We're talking about they were charged with uh, conspiracy to commit murder as well as participation in a criminal gang. What were they allegedly are... planning to do? Um, they had been planning and. You know, according to this, the affidavit released uh, last Friday, I believe it was, um, they were planning to, essentially they were planning to murder a Bartow County couple who uh, had ties to uh, Atlanta and a fascist organization. Um, essentially, in order to, to, to and this is, this is kind of the, the odd part, is 
is you know essentially to pay them back for I guess talking out about you know groups such as theirs, but also they they targeted these, this couple specifically because they did not have any ties to these three gentlemen or the base, from what I understand from the affidavit. All right, I want to get into the base in just a second, but how far into this plan were they, according to this affidavit? Well, and, and again, this is this is an affidavit from an FBI and Floyd County Police Department uh, investigation, uh, primarily FBI. And I mean, they had been by the house at least twice. Um, they had discussed what weapons they were going to use. They had discussed, you know, ways they weren't, you know, ways they weren't going to get caught. They were going to duct tape their cuffs and, you know, to keep whatever fibers. And you mm-hmm. know, they had also discussed um, these bags that you attach to their, their weapons uh, in order to keep the shell casings from being left at the scene, that kind of stuff. I mean, they're, they, they've done quite a bit of discussion, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they had planned uh, in early February to have, like, kind of the final meeting before, um, you know, before actually going to, you know, conduct this murder. Now, the arrests were made by federal agents, along with other arrests across the country. This was in advance of a rally on this past Monday by gun rights advocates in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Joanna, over to you. These men allegedly are tied to the white supremacist group, The Base. What is The Base? So in this last week, we've had over seven arrests of individuals allegedly connected to the base. And the base is a small militant neo-Nazi organization that essentially emerged in 2018. And they see themselves as these vigilante soldiers defending the European race against what they perceive as a broken system, a system that has been injected with Jewish values. And so they'll cite multiculturalism or diversity, liberalism and immigration as these elements, these values that are bringing society down. And so within the white supremacist movement, the base essentially fits within the accelerationist bucket. And they believe that the system is essentially spiraling down because of these, what they believe, deviant values, and that it is their aim to further expedite the collapse of the system through direct targets. So whether or not it's attacking uh, minority groups or those that they perceive as enemies or targeting the system, they talk about targeting electric power lines or poisoning the water, um, or even at this Virginia rally this past weekend, creating chaos because their end goal is really to bring the system down. And so we saw through the affidavit with um, the the other arrest. um, Which were New Jersey and or or Maryland and New Jersey, if I've got that right. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of the individuals connected to the Maryland case, um, their desire was to take advantage of the chaos, of the turmoil, of a mainstream issue of gun violence um, and insert themselves in order to carry out a, a larger attack against society. So accelerationists, this is a term used by white supremacists to, to, to hasten the collapse of society as we know it, is my understanding. Is there one leader of the group? 
So there's a man by the name, he goes by an AKA of Norman Spear, um, who is uh, believed to be in the Pacific Northwest. But essentially, although he is the thought leader and kind of the, the, um, the, the individual at the head of the organization, we see a really decentralized operation. And this case brings that front and center, where you see cells in New Jersey and Maryland, in Georgia, um, throughout the country, and for that matter, internationally, um, from Canada, England, and Australia. And um, each of them are engaged, they embrace the ideology, they are engaged in paramilitary tactics, they are practicing and preparing their weapons, and in fact, they see hourly, they see themselves as survivalists, but really they uh, and their actions are really nothing more than an extension of Nazi genocide. John, I read reports that there's some sort of camp or land held by one of these three suspects that there has been used for a training ground. Do you, Is there any validity to that? So, yes, from what we understand that there was a, Luke Lane had property out in Silver Creek, which is in a remote part of Floyd County. And this gentleman, Patrick Matthews, who was arrested in Maryland, uh, going to the Virginia Second Amendment rights rally, had been down here. They had uh, participated in paramilitary training, which this group seems to be known for. In fact, I think the affidavit encouraged, there, there were discussions um, heard by federal agents where they, they encourage people to form, I think they called them trouble trios with groups of three, hmm. uh, set, you know, three man cells in order to keep, you know, keep it, keep information tight, keep, well, essentially what happened in this investigation from happening and, you know, promote, I'm honestly promote terror. I mean, we're, we're using the term accelerationism and things like that, but I mean, they're, they were plotting, you know, according to this affidavit, according to these charges, they're, they're plotting to murder a couple just to, to prove a point, essentially, because they were angry about uh, their fellow you know, neo-Nazis getting doxxed mm. by anti-fascist groups. We're talking about the recent arrest of three North Georgia men who are suspected members of a white supremacist group known as The Base. Joanna Mendelson is with us. She's from the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Also on the line, John Bailey, executive editor at the Rome News Tribune, which has been reporting on the arrests and the case. I want to pick up on, Joanna, on what John just talked about. It was an FBI agent that infiltrated this group and, and I guess rode along with them in some cases as they were casing the house of this couple, for example. But, but tell us a little bit more about this kind of concept of domestic terrorism. It is not an official charge in the United States justice system. What is the Anti-Defamation League seeing in terms of trends of extremist groups like this, how they're organizing and and what they're doing? So, you know, if you look back at the Tree of Life shooting, which was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack our country has experienced in our in, since our inception, we saw 12 other white supremacist plots, attacks and terrorist threats targeting Jews and others targeting other groups as well. And the majority of these 
plots have been thwarted by law enforcement. So in this case brings it front and center that law enforcement and their incredible efforts to investigate, to infiltrate, and to disrupt a heinous organization should be really commended. But one of the things law enforcement are forced to do is really be creative with the types of tools they can bring and prosecute and arrest these individuals. Because frankly, we do not have a domestic terrorism federal criminal charge in our country to date. These are domestic terrorists but we cannot legally pros uh, prosecute them as such. So we really need to take a look at um, what federal tools we can bring to bear that perpetrators uh, are not prosecuted just on weapons charges and acts of violence and racketeering, but that we close the legislative gap by balancing the First Amendment considerations and association rights with ways to protect our nation against these actors. Well, so this has been a slippery slope legally. It was something I'm thinking back to the 90s, right, when we had this wave of violent extremist acts, some planned, some averted. But the, the anti-government fatalities and actions in Waco, in Ruby Ridge, the Oklahoma City bombing, certainly. Let's reel back for just a second. What does the data show about the role of white supremacists in these kind of actions compared to the national focus, I think, since then on international terrorism. You know, we just look at data. Data drives policy. And ADL has been uh, tracking domestic uh, terrorist-related, uh, domestic extremist-related murders in our country since 1979. And what we found is that in 2018, of the 50 murders committed by extremists last year, all but one were conducted by right-wing extremists. And if you dive down further, 78% of them were specifically tied to white supremacists. Now let's pull back over a decade and the same trends hold true, that uh, we have an overwhelming majority of domestic terrorist murders are at the hands of white supremacists. 73% uh, are committed by right-wing extremists. So the threat is, is uh, alive and well, unfortunately, and these cases bring that uh, to uh, front. John Bailey, have you had conversations there with local law enforcement? Had they been tracking these three before they were really pounced on by the FBI? Well, I know the Fuller County Police Department was participating in this investigation, at least to some degree. Um, however, I don't, I don't believe they were on anybody's radar prior to that. Hmm. I mean, prior to this federal investigation beginning, you know, uh, again, only one of the three gentlemen that are arrested was from this particular area. The other one's from Gwinnett, and the other one's from Dalton, which is about an hour away. Right. Um, and so as somebody who sees, you know, arrest reports every day and, you know, has a tendency to know the, the names of the local people who get arrested quite often, Lee Blaine wasn't uh, among any of them. Well, how about the reaction to your reporting? And is North Georgia surprised by this turn of events? I mean, I think... I think there has certainly been a lot of surprise that this kind of thing was going on, I mean, essentially in our backyard. Yeah, certainly. Joanna, I'm wondering if there are warning signs of radicalization, you know, something that uh, family and friends might notice. And, and how are these people recruited, I'm guessing, online? You know, historically, uh, individuals may have recruited by those in their vicinity, in their geographic region. Um, but now we see with uh, the weaponization of technology and the use of encrypted chats 
in various extremist platforms and even mainstream platforms, individuals are getting radicalized. The um, the messaging, the propaganda, even the injection into memes, um, bigoted and racist humor is essentially creating a learning community of individuals who get uh, who are, are are kind of digesting the ideology, the propaganda, and self-radicalizing. So groups like the base essentially started online and we see a lot of their propaganda and their recruitment taking place in both open source um, uh, platforms as well as encrypted chats and private communications. John mentioned Patrick Matthews. His name is full name Patrick Jordan Matthews. He was a Canadian military engineer who met with these three young men from Georgia. What do we know about him? So um, Matthews, if you look, um, was allegedly connected with the base, but also has a a military background as a reservist um, and someone who communicated. And I think what what comes to light here is the the geographic boundaries no longer apply when it comes to white supremacy, where we see the connections, the um, the interactions and the collaboration of individuals from Canada to the U.S., and abroad in other parts of the of our of our world is made even easier with the internet and with that communication. John mentioned these trouble trios, this idea of the small cell formation. Now, I was looking up the, the term the base. Al Qaeda loosely translates as the foundation or the base. Is this group taking notes from Al Qaeda or is this just a, an extremist vocabulary coincidence? You know, uh, if you see some of the messaging that they say, the base translates in Arabic to Al-Qaeda. So there's certainly references and admiration to the tactics and the, the kind of results of their terrorist acts. But Norman Spear is very clear to say that although they do take notes, although they do take uh, lessons from these uh, terrorist groups abroad, that they should not collaborate um, with these uh, other ideologies. So um, looking at this small cell model, this is something that did work for Al-Qaeda, certainly. Uh, And there's a question of whether or not this might even lone wolves would be inspired to plot their own attacks. Joanna, what do we know about how law enforcement is keeping an eye out for these lone wolf attackers? So the concept of lone wolf activity is not anything new. And we've seen this look just in Georgia's past history of Eric Rudolph, who was motivated to target the Olympic uh, Olympic site in a gay bar. Um, lone wolf tactics are encouraged because you're not drawing the attention of law enforcement so readily versus an organization or group has many more eyes. And so we see lone wolf tactics as the kind of uh, um, uh, the methodology most preferred in order to subvert the democratic process and to wreak havoc on our system and against perceived enemies. And so this group takes notes from that and encourages real world connection, but on a small localized level. Joanna Mendelson from the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And John Bailey, executive editor at the Rome News Tribune. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Coming up, polish your playlist game for 2020. We've got a couple of critics from Paste Magazine, and we're going to look at what's in store for the year in music. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're heading into the last week of January. Time to take stock of or maybe hit reset on your New Year's resolutions and to refresh your playlist with new and upcoming releases for the new year. You're listening to one right now from Atlanta band The Black Lips. That's the song Rumbler off the Black Lips Sing in a World That's Falling Apart, which comes out today. Josh Jackson, co-founder and editor-in-chief, and Ellen Johnson, assistant music editor of Paste Magazine, are here to help us through some of the upcoming releases that they are excited to hear about, and we're excited to have you back. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Okay, Josh, going to start with you. Another album that's out today, besides the Black Lips, is from the folk band Bonnie Light Horseman, their debut self-titled album. Let's hear a track from that. This is the song Deep in Love. Don't you It's their debut album, but you're already excited about it. How come? I am. So um, if anybody watched the Tony Awards this past year, the the big winner there was Hadestown, and that was the brainchild of uh, Anais Mitchell. And uh, she is also one of the three behind Bonnie Light Horsemen. And uh, it it features Josh Kaufman from uh, Josh Ritter's band. And also Eric um, Eric Johnson from Eric Fruit Johnson, Bats, which is a really you. great folk rock band that we've all been fans of for a while at Pace. So this is kind of a, a dream team in terms of folk musicians. I'm really excited about it. Ellen, later this month on January 31st, uh, there will be albums from Drive-By Truckers, Francis Quinlan from Hopalong, and one from Taurus. Let's hear a song from Taurus' upcoming record. This is Good Scare. was actually raised in Macon, Georgia, a city with its own storied musical history. What can you tell us about her? Yeah, so Torres, also known as Mackenzie Scott, uh, like you said, she grew up in Macon and then spent some time at Belmont University in Nashville, where a lot of great musicians kind of get their start. Um, and then she relocated to Brooklyn, and she's released a few albums. Um, and this one comes after she signed to a new label, Merge Records, based out of North Carolina. And there was a little bit of a controversy with her a couple years ago. Her other label dropped her for not being commercially successful enough, which is, you know, you get that. Business decisions have to be made, but thankfully for fans, of hers, she signed to a new label, and for people who like music, like Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, that kind of stuff, indie rock, like I think people will really get a good kick out of this this record from Torres. We're getting a lot of indie rock so far, or indie folk so far. Krongbin teamed up with Leon Bridges for an upcoming release, and one of the singles is called Seaside. Kind of laid back, a little funky. Let's hear a little bit of that. Josh, what should we know about Krongbin and Leon Bridges? Well, these are two artists that I may not have thought of to put these two together, but it works so well. So Leon Bridges is um, a soul singer. I wouldn't even call it neo-soul. It's old school. Sounds like it could have been recorded in 1973. And um, 
Krungbin is another Texas band. They're more, they take sort of world music and fuse it with psychedelic rock. And so you have these like Afghani influences and Asian influences and Middle Eastern um, feel, but this uh, put to sort of a psychedelic rock thing. So you've got all these different uh, elements coming together in this. And I think the common thread is just uh, the groove. It is just so laid back. It's just cool. You know, I, I can I can see putting this on after a long day at work and, and uh, just being the, the chill music to, to kind of wind down from the day. Okay, Ellen, Tame Impala unveiled a new single from their upcoming album. This is the song Lost in Yesterday. Not quite laid back sound. Something else going on there. What are you, why are you looking forward to this record? Yeah, staying in the psychedelic rock vein, though, for sure. Kind of the same energy. This is the uh, fourth album from Tame Impala, the Australian psychedelic rock band, but it's really just the songwriting project of this guy named Kevin Parker, who I think is just a rock genius. He is so incredible, and he's also a perfectionist, which is why we are getting a new Tame Impala album five years after the last one. It's been a little bit, but I think the wait is going to be worth it. There's an album that's already come out. Eminem released his new record, Music to be Murdered by, earlier this month. Here's the song Godzilla. This is featuring the late Juice World. So Eminem's new song Godzilla featuring the late Juice World, who died in December at the age of just 21 years old. Atlanta locals Migo say they will also have a song recorded with Juice World, which may appear on their upcoming album, Culture 3. This new record is pretty anticipated because it was supposed to come out last year, and there's been a lot of talk about this, quote, being the last chapter for Migos. We thought our audience in Georgia would be interested in knowing about that. I'm speaking with Ellen Johnson and Josh Jackson of Paste Magazine about some of the exciting music releases coming up in early 2020. Now, last time you all were with us, you talked about the 50 best records of 2019. Now you are apparently giving them away. We are. So we do this contest every year um, in January. So we come out with our, our list of the best albums, and then we put together prize packages for our readers of vinyl of those albums. So the grand prize is 10 uh, albums from our from our top 50, and we'll kind of... Uh, uh, pick pick ones that are that are based on whoever wins it, uh, get, matching their music taste a little bit. We'll we'll curate that for them. But uh, yeah, it's just a fun it's a fun way to to celebrate uh, the year in music. And well, you can you can enter right now at pacemagazine.com. So that is all about last year. We're all about this coming year. That's coming right. Coming up on mm-hmm. this conversation. Oh, Josh, like Taurus, there is more Southern-based indie rock from a female lead singer, a Nashville musician who performs as Soccer Mommy. She's going to be releasing her new album called Color Theory at the end of February. Here's the song, Lucy. What can you tell us about Soccer Mommy? So if anybody went to Shaky Knees last year, um, you might have seen Sophie Allison's band, Soccer Mommy. Um, it is really her project. I mean, she's got a full band, but uh, she's the brainchild behind it. 
Her al- album uh, Clean in 2018 was one of our best albums of that year. And uh, judging by the singles that have come out so far, this is going to be, an, I, I, I already assume this is going to be on my uh, year end list. You can feel that sort of 90s rock meets uh, sort of the indie rock of today. And she's doing stuff that just doesn't sound like everybody else. And I, I cannot wait for this full album to come out. So that's Soccer Mommy coming out with a new record called Color Theory. We will have a list of all of their picks, by the way, at gpbnews.org. Ellen, as we've been hearing, a lot of Georgia artists coming up with new releases soon. Can't forget one of the majors, Run the Jewels. They say their new album is going to drop before their Coachella performance in April. The last record came out in, what, 2016? Why is it taking so long? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think they're also perfectionists, you know? I think they've taken the time that they need to take to get it right, but they tweeted out on Christmas Day that RTJ4 is out in 2020, and like you said, hopefully before Coachella. Um, And obviously this is, you know, a legendary Atlanta and a rapper is something we've been excited about uh, ever since their last album. So fingers crossed it really does yeah. drop before Coachella. And, and you can forgive him a little bit. I mean, Killer Mike's been busy. He, you know, he, <laughs> he's, he's got his TV show. They, you know, he's so involved in politics. He's uh, the newest member of the board at the High Museum of Art. Um, and, uh, you know, they've released a couple of craft beers in that time. So, I mean, they, they're doing they're doing a lot. He's building an economic engine. I saw him interview Michael Eric Dyson at the Carter Center a couple weeks ago. Just absolutely terrific. Another musician who has kept fans eagerly waiting for the next release, Frank Ocean. His last album, Blonde, came out in 2016, expected to release a new record this year. Let's hear from a single that he put out at the end of last year. This is called In My Room. Quit being violent with me Make me violent Frank Ocean there. We don't know much about the new album, even what the release date might be, but he has hinted that there may be some more collaborative work on it and that this one will be less autobiographical, I guess, maybe more fantastical. What would this shift mean for Frank Ocean fans? Yeah, I'm really interested to see. I mean, Blonde and Channel Orange are pretty much universally adored. Both were on our uh, best albums of the decade list that we published last year. It was a big argument of which were the which of those was going to be higher than the other, and they were both top ten for us. With yeah. Channel Orange, Channel Orange nudging it out at number five, and then you know a couple spots later we had Blonde. But two amazing albums, and four years later, here's another one. Yeah, hopefully so. He says it's going to be influenced by Detroit, Chicago, techno house, and French electronic music. In an interview, he said that. So I want to hear what that sounds like coming out of Frank Ocean's voice. I mean, I'm excited for this. <laughs> Josh Pace does post upcoming releases on the website. What, monthly? How, how often? Yeah, every month we talk about the the releases that are coming up that we are most excited about. Um, sometimes we, we'll get into different genres. Um, there's, a, there's a best country albums uh, of 2020 or most anticipated country albums of 2020 on, a, on our site. And really, we just want to help people discover great music. Mm-hmm. And how about live music? Do you still keep a pretty good check on what's coming up for live music in the area? Yeah, I mean, we, we're always looking because we're, we're having a lot of those bands come in our, our new studio. Um, uh, we moved downtown from Decatur uh, last September. And so we are live streaming from our office um, every, every weekday. We've got bands coming in. Um, you mentioned the Black Lips earlier. They were here last week. Um, so, so Atlanta bands, national bands, but it definitely keeps us, keeps us going. I'll say as far as 
uh, going out to shows. I think Ellen goes sees a lot, <laughs> goes to see a lot more yeah, than I do. Yeah, I'll admit I'm out. I'm out a few nights a week checking out what's what's going on. Well, thank you for bringing it to us, Ellen Johnson. Of course. She's a Pace assistant music editor and Josh Jackson. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Josh is a co-founder and editor-in-chief of Pace Magazine. Again, they're giving away albums from 2019. You can enter at pacemagazine.com. And we're going to leave you with some more new music. This is from the band Tennis. Their new album, Swimmer, is going to be released February 14th. Let's hear the song, Need Your Love. Tell us, what are you looking forward to in 2020? You can join the conversation. It's on our Facebook page, On Second Thought, or reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Since late 2016, a group of young Latinx people have been throwing a monthly dance party. It's called La Choloteca, an effort to reclaim a slur used against people of indigenous origin. And it bills itself as a party with a mission to create a safe and inclusive space for all identities and anyone who wants to jam out to Latin tracks. Last month, producer Priya Mahadevan went to a Choloteca and brought back this audio postcard. Let's go. Can I get some music? Can I get some music? So, my name is Josephine Figueroa, and I am one of the founders and main DJs of La Choloteca. My name is Kenneth Figueroa, and I'm one of the co-founders and co-organizers of Choloteca. Kenneth and I were Peruvian, and we're cousins, so we grew up partying and dancing, and for us, that is what family meant, and those were some of the first experiences of joy and connectedness that we had with our culture. Dancing, you know, it's just a very ingrained thing in our body. That was like the one moment our parents could have where they didn't have to like worry about how to pay rent or all this stuff that I still don't understand how they could make happen. Cholo and chola was always used in a negative way growing up. It's a very classist and uh, racist term. And, you know, at some point, the word started being used in a loving way and also an acceptance. Like, yes, I do come from an indigenous background. Yes, I do come from a poor background. So here we are, Cholos, and we're making this party, and it's Cholos at the discoteca. So we decided to call it La Choloteca. I've had the pleasure of seeing the Latinx community transform because of La Choloteca, something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. My name is Wendy Noreña, and I am one of the resident DJs with Choloteca. My DJ practice is completely embedded in placemaking through soundscapes, and like, how do I create community through the music that I play? My culture and my family is really like family-oriented. I'm really close to all of my family, and so when I went away to college, I felt completely displaced. And what I started doing was I started to listen to a lot of music that I listened to growing up, and then. There are a lot of people that I feel like 
hide in the shadows with that loneliness and then if there is a space where they can kind of like rejoice in that those sounds that feel familiar that feel like home they'll feel like that empowerment to come out of the shadows and to be together in community and in sound and in movement my name is monica campana and Cholotec is creating a space for a young generation to be able to feel safe expressing themselves. Nobody else in this country is doing what Cholotec is doing. Because if you see the narrative of the West Coast, or if you see a narrative of New York, it's very specific. New York is very Puerto Rican Latinx, the West Coast is very Chicano, Mexican Latinx, but the South it's very weird, it fits no box, it's extremely diverse, and Choloteca is here pushing music that's chicha or cumbia, and then there's definitely a lot of Mexican and Chilean, and like everyone could enjoy it because it's like the music that's your roots. Um, it's really special, it's really weird, and nothing is like Choloteca, nothing. That's Monica Campana, one of the founders of La Cholateca. You can join La Cholateca next weekend, Saturday, February 1st, at Star Bar in Atlanta. On Second Thought is produced by Raven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our intern is Julia Sanders. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.